Hi, everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Council Bluffs Daily non This is the Thursday, January 12th edition. It's brought to you here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Hope you're having a great afternoon, everyone. This is Andrew Hop filling in. We're going to check, take a check of the weather first, and then we'll uh, go ahead and uh, look into our headlines. Breezy conditions today with clouds and sun. Expect three to six hours of sunshine with average relative humidity at 65% and fair drying conditions. Patchy clouds tonight, an average relative humidity of 65%. Clouds and sun tomorrow. Expect three to six hours of sunshine with average relative humidity of 60% and fair drying conditions. Well, here's the outlook for today, tonight, and Friday. Breezy and colder conditions for your Thursday. Winds from the north and northwest up to 20 miles per hour. The high of 29 degrees for your Thursday. For tonight, expect patchy clouds. Winds from the north and northwest up to 16 miles per hour. The low of 14 degrees above zero. For Friday, expect intervals of clouds and sun. Windy conditions, well, not too bad, up to 8 miles per hour. So that's what we're looking at for your Friday. Uh, High of 34 degrees on Friday tomorrow. Low of 26 degrees Friday night into Saturday. And then on Saturday, some sun becoming windier with winds from the south up to 25 miles per hour. But hey, a high of 43 degrees for your Saturday. Sunday, milder. Uh, with variable clouds, a high 49 degrees on Sunday. Monday, cooler and showers around at a high of 43 degrees. So that's what it looks like for the western Iowa, eastern Nebraska area. Expect uh, in other places throughout the state today. Expect in Ames, a high 26. Des Moines, high 27. Harlan, high 26. Iowa City, if you're going out way out that way, high 35. If you're headed out of the state today into the Nebraska area, expect in Lincoln, a high 33. In um, Beatrice, Nebraska, or Beatrice, however they say that, high 32 degrees today. If you're going up to Okaboji, Iowa, high of 20 degrees today. Hopefully that lake is good and frozen. I know the winter games aren't too far from now. I think they should be happening right around this time. Let us take a check of the headlines for today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Parel. Warning, warming Center provides safe space. New visions to bring support on site. That story by David Golbitz. Also has a photo essay here of Motion Works Gets Kids Moving at Council Bluffs Public Library. And it shows Abby Edwards with Motion Works Gets Kids Dancing to the beat of the studio's free creative movement class at the Council Bluffs Public Library that happened on Wednesday, January the 11th. And the caption reads, Area kids boogie down a, during a creative movement class hosted by Motion Works Dance at the Council Bluffs Public Library Wednesday, January 11th. Motion Works, a Council Bluffs dance studio at 19851 Virginia Hills Road, puts on the free class from 10.30 to 11 a.m. on the second Wednesday of each month. Kids five and under are invited to let loose and get creative with a variety of uh, activities. The classes are held outside of at Bayless Park during the summer months. All right, so that's what's happening on uh, those days. Uh, kids are uh, getting some exercise. Republicans to move quickly on Reynolds' proposal. Bill looks at private school education funding. Also, Council Bluffs Community School District discusses cybersecurity in wake of the Des Moines attack. And uh, we're going to start it off now, though, first with a warming center provides safe space. New visions to bring support on site. The Council Bluffs City Council approved a request Monday from New Visions Homeless Services for a temporary use permit to open a warming center to help the city's homeless population this winter. The warming center, located at 1607 I Avenue, is expected to 
is, is open to those experiencing homelessness or who don't have access to warmth. That'd be Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. through April 1st. In addition to providing two hot meals and a warm place to stay during the day, New Visions is making available the services it provides at its main campus, which is currently over capacity, to those who visit the warming center. It allows another space for individuals to have access to our caseworkers and housing advocates to hopefully identify what barriers are standing in the way from them going into permanent housing and help them to get their IDs, to get their social security cards, to fill out housing applications to help get them employment ready. New Vision's president and CEO Brandy Waller said in an interview with the Daily Nonpareil. The Warming Center resolution, which passed unanimously, does include certain conditions that New Visions must adhere to, like maintaining a clean and orderly shelter, not allowing drugs or alcohol on the premises, and not disturbing the neighboring homes and businesses. Last year, I voted against the Warming Center, and I still have a lot of concerns as how we as how to uh, address the homeless situation in Council Bluffs. But I think, in fairness to Brandy Waller, last year we said can't have any issues with needing the police to come in can't affect the neighbors you gotta have a purpose to what you're doing there and she did all that that says counselor chad hannon during the study session before monday's uh, council meeting i did vote against it last year this year i'm going to vote in support of it with the same conditions of course Waller is appreciative of the city council's vote and is looking forward to continuing to work with the city to address homelessness in the future. I think that everyone in leadership of Council Bluffs realizes that individuals experiencing homelessness is something that our community has to face together. And having the the council's unanimous vote shows that they're willing to work with us as an agency to come up with solutions, Waller said. The reality is homelessness is not just going to go away. We have to be strategic, and then we have to provide solutions for our friends experiencing homelessness to make sure that everyone has access to safe and affordable housing. Also, repairs coming to Union Pacific Railroad Museum. During its January 9th meeting, the council also voted to approve plans and cost estimates for repairs to the Union Pacific Railroad Museum's exterior handrails and fire escapes, which have not been updated since the building was renovated in 2002. The project includes repairs to the supports, blasting surfaces to prep for painting, painting, repairs to damaged or missing handrails, and handrail finish restoration. The estimated cost of this project is $163,762, which the city will fund with general operating bonds. The city will begin to solicit bids on January 31st and award the winning bid two weeks later. The city anticipates the project will be finished by the beginning of June. South Expressway Reconstruction Bid Awarded Hawkins Construction of Omaha was awarded the contract for Phase 1 of the South Expressway Reconstruction Project with a winning bid of $5,860,120.60 $5,860,120.66, about $1 million less than the next bid. The reconstruction project will include new roadway pavement, drainage improvements, and street lighting from just north of the I-29, I-80 ramps to just south of 19th Avenue and a concrete trail on the east side of the South Expressway from the interstate ramps to 23rd Avenue. Construction is expected to begin in the spring and won't be finished until November. In other front page news, Republicans to move quickly on Reynolds' proposal. 
Bill looks at private school education funding. The story by Caleb McCullough of the Dateline Des Moines. Iowa lawmakers are set to move quickly on a bill proposed by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds to designate millions in public funding to pay for students to attend private schools, setting the bill up for subcommittee hearings in the next week. Reynolds' proposal would allow parents to set up an education savings account that would receive $7,598 from the state, a student's full per-pupil funding at a public school that can be used for tuition, supplies, and other expenses at a private school. Reynolds' office estimates the bill would cost $106.9 million in the first year. The House Education Reform Committee, a new committee specifically for the uh, for the purpose of considering the legislation, will hold a public hearing on the measure on January 17th. In the Senate, a subcommittee will consider the legislation on Thursday. Leaders in both the House and the Senate signaled as the session began this week that they wanted to move quickly on the legislation, which opponents say would be detrimental to public schools, especially those in rural areas with already strained budgets. Supporters say the program would give parents more choice in education, help students find schools that best fit their needs, and improve the quality of both public and private education. Republican Ken Rosenboom of Oskaloosa, the chair of the Senate Education Committee, said he supports the measure and will work with the rest of the Senate Republicans to resolve any issues with the bill. He did not say when he expects the bill to move to a full-floor vote. I'm generally supportive, he said. I've not had the chance to get through all the details of it. I have questions like everyone should have. While recording this weekend's episode of Iowa Press on Iowa PBS, Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said the legislation will see a vote in the Iowa House and he thinks it has the support to pass. Grassley chairs the Education Reform Committee. I feel confident we'll have the support, but there's going to be a vote in the House either way, he said. Iowans are going to get to see where their legislator stands on the issue. Well, Grassley also didn't say when the bill would go before the full House for a vote, but he said it would be a top priority for the chamber. We're going to continue to follow the committee process, follow all the things that are tied to it with the calendars and things, he said. But if and when the support is there, as it moves forward, we're obviously going to want to take action. What's in the bill? The top line item from Reynolds' bill is the education savings accounts, which would devote $7,598 from the state that parents can use for educational expenses. For some schools, that amounts to more than the cost of tuition. The average cost for a Catholic school in Iowa last year was between $2,800 and $4,000 for K-8 through school and $9,000 for high school, Executive Director of the Iowa Catholic Conference Tom Chapman said. For Protestant Christian schools, the average is $5,938 for elementary, $6,138 for middle school, and $7,592 for high school, according to the Iowa Association of Christian Schools. Beyond tuition, the money can be spent on textbooks, fees or payments for educational therapies, curriculum fees, software, and materials for a course, tuition for a vocational and life skills education, education materials and services for students with disabilities, standardized test fees, and test fees associated with college admissions. Unspent funds in one year would roll over to the following year. Once a student graduates from high school, unspent funds in their education savings would account would be returned to the state general fund. 
The bill also includes measures that supporters say will allow public schools to compete with private schools and address some concerns opponents have. School districts would get $1,250 in funding from the state for each student that lives in the district but attends a private school. Additionally, it allows unspent funds in teacher leadership initiatives and professional development programs to be used to increase teaching salaries. During the first year of the program, an education savings account would be available to any student enrolled in a public school. Students starting kindergarten and families with students enrolled in a private school making less than 300% of the poverty line. By the third year, all students, both public and private, would be eligible regardless of income. The cost of the program would be $106.9 million in the first year, according to estimates from the governor's office. One concern opponents have raised is the lack of options for some parents in areas where there are no private schools. According to the Department of Education data, there are 40 counties with no private schools, nearly all of them rural counties. There are 185 private schools in total, with 33,413 students enrolled in the 2022-23 school year. Grassley said the proposal could expand the market for private schools, meaning new schools could open in those areas that currently have no private schools. We've already seen expansion of current private school systems we have without a program like this, he said during the taping of Iowa Press. So there may be more of those being created around the state from a program like this. Well, Democrats and opponents push back. Despite having no opportunity from for public comment on Wednesday, spectators packed committee rooms in the Capitol, many wearing America Needs Public Schools t-shirts, and expressing opposition to Reynolds' plan. Tiffany Welch, a mother of two from Clive, was there to advocate against the proposal. She said she wants to see public money remain in public schools. Welch moved from California to Iowa when she was pregnant with her first child, partly because she knew it had good schools. Now she's worried the school choice program will detract from that. I've seen firsthand with my own children and my own experience how a quality public education has really impacted my life, she said, and I want the same for my kids. In a statement on Wednesday, Mike Baranek, president of the Iowa State Education Association, said private schools have less oversight over who they will allow in and who they employ, and that most families will not benefit from private school assistance. The ISEA represents public school teachers in Iowa. The ISEA stands firmly in support of Iowa's excellent public education employees, our students, and our public schools. A strong public education system is the foundation of a healthy and prosperous state and should be guaranteed to all and fully funded, Baranek said. In other front page news, Council Bluffs Community School District discusses cybersecurity. Des Moines Cyber Attack brings issue to the forefront. This is written by Tim Johnson. Cybersecurity is a growing concern for Iowa's public school districts after cyber attacks hit computer networks at Glenwood, Cedar Rapids, Davenport, and most recently Des Moines Public Schools this past week. Des Moines Network was hit over the weekend, prompting the district's IT staff to take it offline Monday and resulting in school being canceled for Tuesday and Wednesday, according to the Associated Press. The district announced Tuesday that it would resume classes on Thursday. Students will have to make up the lost time. Schools now rank fourth as a target of cyber criminals, according to John Stile, chief technology officer for Council Bluffs Community School District, who spoke during the Board of Education meeting Tuesday. The threat is real, he said. We definitely are a target. Our district tech team works hard each and every day to meet that threat. Cyber attacks and breakdowns can disrupt education and critical operations, expose sensitive personally 
identifiable information of students, teachers, and staff and lead to high recovery costs, Stiles said. The district's goal number three is to improve and maintain learning facilities. Part of that is for all classrooms to be equipped with updated technology, Stiles said. That means having good cybersecurity and dedicated IT staff, he said. It also means protecting financial and personnel records. Types of cyber threats include the following. He said data breach. That'd be number one. Confidential information is leaked or spilled from a secure to an unsecure environment. Next is denial of service. A network is paralyzed or deliberately overloaded with requests. The third bullet is spoofing or phishing. An email purporting to be from a legitimate organization attempts to lure the recipient into connecting to a link, thereby providing the sender with access to protected systems. From there we go to malware, where you uh, elicit software damages or disable ser- devices, servers, or networks. We also have ransomware, where a perpetrator encrypts files in a targeted network, then demands payment of a ransom before allowing the user to regain access to the data. The district protects against these threats through the following, Stiles said. From there we go to maintaining up-to-date firewalls. Using a denial-of-service protection service. Also using endpoint detection and response protection. Using enterprise management server protection. Using the paid Google workspace. Using a backup system. And then getting threat alerts from a multi-state information sharing resource and the Office of the Chief Information Officer of Iowa, which provides weekly updates. The EMS protection monitors devices to show whether operating systems, programs, and virus protection are still up to date, Stiles said. It helps the the desk in real time and provides a daily report. When something happens and we know something's going wrong, we can dispatch a tech immediately, he said. In November, the IT department conducted a phishing campaign, Stiles said. Two emails were sent to all staff members to see if people would click on them. Google Workspace blocked the sample email, so security had to be reduced during the test. More than 6,000 emails were sent out, and 328 recipients clicked on those emails, Stiles said. Of those, only six actually exchanged data with the source. In similar tests, other districts have often had 50% or more click. We did really well here in Council Bluff schools, he said. All of those who clicked were directed to a brief phishing training course. Besides Google Workspace, Chromebooks themselves have built-in security protection, Stiles said. Chromebooks have two operating systems and do not need an outside endpoint detection and response mechanism. If, for whatever reason, something has changed the code on the operating core, the machine reboots and it makes an exact copy of the original, and you're off and running again, he said. That's essentially, for PCs, what EDR is doing. John has done such a good job of making sure we are protected, Superintendent Vicki Marillo said. Well, the IT department last summer banned TikTok, which is not very secure. Our final front page story here in the Council Bluffs Daily non Thursday edition is soaring egg prices put pressure on consumers. And the photo here shows a chicken. Barred rock chickens roost in their coop Tuesday at historic Wagner Farm in Glenview, Illinois. Dateline, Omaha, Nebraska. The story by Josh Funk of the AP. Chickens may not be able to fly very far, but the price of eggs is soaring. A lingering flu outbreak, bird flu outbreak, combined with a soaring feed, fuel, and labor costs has led to U.S. egg prices more than doubling over this past year and hatched a lot of sticker shock on grocery aisles. 
The national average price for a dozen eggs hit $3.59 in November, up from $1.72 a year earlier, according to the latest government data. That's putting stress on consumer budgets and bottom lines of restaurants, bakeries, and other food producers that rely heavily on eggs. Grocery prices that were up 12% in November are driving inflation higher, even though the overall pace of price increases slowed a bit through the fall as gas prices eased. But egg prices are up significantly more than other foods, even more than chicken or turkey, because egg farmers were hit harder by the bird flu. More than 43 million of the 58 million birds slaughtered over the year to control the virus have been egg-laying chickens, including some farms with more than a million birds apiece in major egg-producing states like Iowa. Everyone who approaches the egg case at a Hy-Vee grocery store in Omaha has a sour face, said shopper Nancy Stom. But even with the cost increases, eggs remain relatively cheap compared to the price of other proteins like chicken or beef, with a pound of chicken breast going for $4.42 on average in November and a pound of ground beef selling for $4.85, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's still an inexpensive meal, Stom said, but the 70-year-old said that at these prices, she'll watch her eggs more closely in the fridge and try not to let them go bad before they get used. If prices remain this high, Chicago resident Kelly Fisher said she will start thinking more seriously about building a backyard chicken coop because everyone in her family eats eggs. Yeah, I've had that thought myself. We with neighbors are contemplating building a chicken coop behind our houses. So eventually I hope not to buy them and have my own eggs. And I think the cost comes into that somewhat. The 46-year-old public school teacher said while shopping it, Harvest Time, Harvest Time Foods on the city's north side. For me, it's more of the environmental impact in trying to purchase locally. In some places, it can even be hard to find eggs on the shelves. But egg supplies overall are holding up because the total flock is only down about 5% from its normal size of around 320 million hens. Farmers have been working to replace their flocks as soon as they can after an outbreak. Jacob Werner, age 18, said he tries to find the cheapest eggs he can because he eats five or six of them a day while he's trying to gain weight and build muscle. For a while, I just stopped eating eggs as they got more expensive, but since they're my favorite food, I came back to them in the end, said Werner, who lives in Chicago. So I think for like a few months, I just stopped eating eggs, waited for the price to come down. It never did, so I'm buying again. Purdue University agricultural economist Jason Lusk said he believes the bird flu outbreak is the biggest driver in the egg increases. Unlike past years, the virus lingered throughout the summer and made a resurgence last fall infecting egg and poultry farms. Bird flu is not the only factor, but in my view, it's the main driver of what we're experiencing at the moment, Lusk said. But the president and CEO of the American Egg Board trade group, Emily Metz, said she believes all the cost increases farmers have faced in the past year were a bigger factor in the price increases than bird flu. When you're looking at fuel costs go up and you're looking at feed costs go up as much as 60%, labor costs, packaging costs, all of that, those are much, much bigger factors than bird flu for sure, Metz said. 
Jada Thompson, a University of Arkansas agricultural economist, said there may be some relief coming in egg prices in the next couple months because egg farmers have been steadily replacing their flocks lost to bird flu last year and demand will ease a bit now that people are done with their holiday baking. But she said bird flu remains a wild card that could still drive prices higher if there are more sizable outbreaks at egg farms. Food producers and restaurants are hurting because it's hard to find a good substitute for eggs in their recipes. Any decrease in egg prices would be welcome to Patty Stobaz, two restaurants and two bakeries in Conway and Russellville, Arkansas. A case of 15 dozen eggs has gone from $36 to $86 over the last year. But flour, butter, chicken, and everything else she buys is also more expensive. Stobaz said that as her has a, has her hypervigilant hyper about every little item. She's already increased her prices 8% in the past year, and she may have to soon increase them again. It's a delicate balance of trying not to make it too expensive for people to eat out and hurting sales, but she doesn't have much choice while trying to provide for her 175 employees. We have a lot of employees that work for us and are responsible for making payroll every week and supporting their families. We take that very seriously, but it certainly has been tough, Stobaugh said. That's all the front page news here in the Council of Bluffs Daily Non-Perel. Took up almost half of our time. Well, that's a good sign. That means it's full stories. So what we're going to do, we'll move on to uh, one note here on page A2, the only story by itself. And this is uh, Face of the Day. A photo by Joe Shearer. It is Abby Perkins. She is new to the Council Bluffs Public Library, but it's quickly becoming one of her favorite places to hang out. She's age two and lives in Council Bluffs, and she was seen having fun, a fun morning with her aunt, Chris Underwood of the Missouri Valley, at the library on Wednesday. Motion Works Dance hosted its monthly creative mo- movement class with the library's youth services department, and Perkins was dancing, hopping around, and moving to the beat of some of uh, fun children's tunes. Youth Services Manager Anna Hartman read the group We Want Snow, A Wintry Chant by author Jamie A. Swenson to let them wind down before getting into the grand finale. Bouncing snowflake-shaped balls around on a play parachute to recreate a snowy day. After the class, Perkins and her aunt headed to the Youth Services Department to read books, play with a dollhouse castle, and socialize with her kids, with other kids. Underwood said she's a social little lady and has enjoyed interacting with others. She also said she used to take her daughter, Shelby, to the library when she was a kid, so it's nice to continue the tradition with her niece. Perkins has only just started coming to the library, but her aunt and grandma plan on taking her there two or three times a week. When she's not enjoying the library, Perkins is known to be a lover of the outdoors, no matter what the weather. She said it's been nice having such unseasonably warm weather in recent weeks, and she's been taking advantage of it. Her aunt said... They like to hop around and check out the various playgrounds spread out across Council Bluffs as well. Perkins is looking forward to having fun and learning at the library in 2023. Moving on now to state news on page A3. Brenna Bird brings focus on crime and victims as Attorney General term begins. It's written by Caleb McCullough. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd is looking to make good on the promises she made on the campaign trail, coming into the office as Iowa's first Republican Attorney General since 1979. In an interview on Tuesday, Byrd said she wants to put a focus on crime and victim advocacy in the office. She ran her campaign 
promising to stand by law enforcement and back the blue. How that looks in practice is putting a focus on the areas of the office that deal with crime, victim services, and prosecution. She took over as Attorney General on January 3rd from Democrat Tom Miller, who, hold, who held the office for a combined 40 years between 1979 and 2023, taking off one term after an unsuccessful run for governor. Byrd announced last week she was performing a top-down and bottom-up audit of the office's Victim Services Division. In that audit, Byrd said she wants to find out the kind of accommodations made to victims of crimes and the services the office could be providing. In Byrd's experience as a prosecutor, she said victims had expressed a need for counseling, a place to live, or help replacing property that was destroyed. The audit process will involve holding listening sessions around the state, speaking with advocates, prosecutors, and law enforcement about how the, the office can better serve victims. Bird was most recently the county attorney for Guthrie County, and she also has been the county attorney in Fremont and Audubon counties. Before assuming public office, she worked as a counsel and chief of staff to former Republican U.S. Representative Steve King and was former Republican Governor Terry Branstead's chief counsel from 2011 to 2015. I want to sit down and talk directly with the people who were affected in providing the services to see how we can do better, she said. In addition to hiring two new prosecutors, Byrd said she plans to build a cold case unit and a special victims unit. The special victims unit would deal with cases involving especially vulnerable people, including the disabled, the elderly, and children. She said the office would work on training prosecutors and law enforcement to deal with those crimes. Some of those cases that I was able to work on as a prosecutor were some of the toughest I worked on, but they were very rewarding because I know that when a child molester goes to prison, it means that we are preventing future children from being victimized by that person. Proposing legislation. Bird has proposed legislation in the Iowa legislature that would increase the penalty for selling most controlled substances when the substance causes a death or serious injury. With no specific statute covering sale of drugs that leads to death, prosecutors can usually get a Class D felony conviction, which carries a sentence of up to five years in prison. Byrd wants to raise that to Class B, which carries a maximum of 25 years in prison. Around 25 states have laws making it a specific crime to sell a drug resulting in death to another person. Federal law also carries a 20-year minimum sentence for the sale of a drug resulting in the death or serious injury. State law does not adequately address that. We need to hold those people accountable, she said. As a prosecutor, when I would have an opioid death in my county, I would do everything I could to see if the U.S. Attorney's Office, if the federal government could take the case because they could get justice for the victim, where at the state level, I just don't think the penalty matches the crime. Berta also said she wants to introduce legal challenges or changes that would improve conditions for crime victims, pointing to issues prosecutors have brought up to her. While she didn't name specifics, she said the proposal would include some changes that would make the process a little bit better for a crime victim. In regards to lawsuits, on her first day in office, the Republican made good on another promise from her campaign, suing Joe Biden's administration. She entered legal battles against the president's student loan forgiveness program, vaccine mandates, and a provision of the American Rescue Plan that blocks states from using federal funds to cut taxes. Byrd characterized the decision as pushing back against federal overreach.
So with that being read and said, we are well past the halfway point. Here to tell you you are listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Prel here on Thursday, January the 12th, 2023. Hope you're having a great afternoon, everyone. This is Andrew Hauptfilling filling in. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. All material heard here on IRIS is intended solely for the use of our audience. And we move on now to the obituaries here. In today's edition of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Prel, they start on page A9. It looks like we only have one to bring you for today. That would be for Mary Jean Sparks, maiden name Sparks. Frost is her married name, last name. Age 81 of Council Bluffs passed away January 11, 2023 at the Midlands Living Center. Mary Jean, or MJ, was born on June 3, 1941 in Omaha, Nebraska to the late John and Molly Grasmick Sparks. She grew up in Orient, Iowa and graduated there in 1958. In high school, she was a piano accompanist for many vocal groups. After graduation, Mary Jean attended Jenny Edmondson School of Nursing in 1959, graduating in 1962. She served as a registered nurse at Bluffs Obstetrics and Gynecology Office in Council Bluffs from 1980 to 1996. MJ was a former member of Broadway United Methodist Church, and was a 4-H leader in the 70s and 80s, also serving on their youth committee. MJ was a member of the Jenny Edmondson Alumni Association and volunteered for the RSVP program with the Red Cross and Iowa Cookie Crumbs. After retiring in 1996, MJ enjoyed sewing and alterations in her home. She loved crafts, cake and cookie decorating, oil painting, playing the piano, traveling, going to movies, and babysitting grandkids and great-grandkids, spending time with family and friends. Mary Jean is preceded in death by her father, John Sparks, in 1964, her mother, Molly Sparks, in 1998, son, Jeff Frost, in 1992, and daughter, Julie Taylor, in 2021. Survivors include son, John, married to Teresa Frost of Council Bluffs, son-in-law, Sean Taylor of Danbury, Connecticut, grandchildren, Ashley, married to Kevin Smith, Chris Frost, great-grandchildren, Trenton and Noah Faust, Ella and Jersey, and Harley Smith, all of Council Bluffs. Visitation will be Friday, 5 to 7 p.m., funeral services, Saturday, 10.30 a.m., all at the funeral home. Jenny Edmondson Honor Guard will have the last call. Interment is in the Cedar Lawn Cemetery, followed by a luncheon at the Walnut Hill Reception Center. Family has asked memorials to the Jenny Edmondson Alumni Association and Foundation, Wings of Hope or Make-A-Wish. That takes care of our obituaries for today. We move on to the opinion section here in the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Parel. Another view, this out of the New York Daily News, but uh, printed here. Blizzard kills far too many. When in February 2021, the temperature in parts of Texas dropped to the low teens, crushing the power infrastructure, officials were at the loss, were at a loss, dealing with a problem they hadn't had before and people died as a result. The same was true later that year in the Pacific Northwest as temperatures hit 115 degrees, baking Oregon and Washington to the point that cables literally melted and roads buckled in a region where most homes don't have AC and people died as a result. The same cannot be said for officials responsible for the safety of typically snowbound western New York, which was rocked by a blizzard that caused a staggering death toll of at least 39. Yes, the blizzard dumped a heavy snow on Buffalo, totaling about four feet. Still 31 people dead in Buffalo with a population of 280,000, 
would be equivalent to a death toll of 1,000 in New York City, a gigantic catastrophe. Some damage was done by Buffalonians disregarding emergency instructions, but there was some official complacency. It seems like government leaders figured they knew snow and cold weather and reacted too slowly with road closures and travel bans. In this way, being too used to a certain type of storm can be as dangerous as being completely blindsided by it. Leaders around the country will have to learn that even relatively standard weather events can be unexpectedly devastating in a world with a rapidly changing global climate. The days of normal precautions won't cut it for an abnormal reality. An author is not listed with that piece, FYI. Next up, Amazon's fate in Lula's hands. The world's fourth largest democracy swore in a new and old president after kicking its own second-rate Trumpian demagogue to the curb. Brazilian, Brazilian President Luiz Encacio Lula da Silva, better known as simply as Lula, was sworn in January 1st his second time at the helm of the diverse and massive nation, squeaking, squeaking out a thin victory over Jair Bolsonaro. I'm saying his name right. Is it Jair Bolsonaro? I always just hear it say it said Bolsonaro, so uh, I'm not sure how you say his first name. Anyway, you all know who it is. The transition of power is itself a monumental relief for the country and the world. After Bolsonaro spent three weeks toying with the idea of staging some kind of self-coup, and his supporters briefly stormed government buildings in the capital. Yet Lula taking the reins is a development with significance much beyond the interest of 217 million Brazilians. It is an event with planetary consequence for one key reason. Brazil hosts the majority of the Amazon rainforest, the lungs of the earth, the globe's richest biodiversity of 150 to 200 metric gigant gigantons. Is that what that is? Gigantons of carbon that would otherwise get released in the atmosphere and supercharge climate change. A disappearing Amazon just doesn't release existing carbon, but stops capturing the carbon released from other sources. Bolsonaro seemed unbothered by this catastrophe in the making. Lula understands that no narrow commercial interests are worth the measurable cost and future devastation of a planet with a depleted Amazon. The new president has already appointed a team with a real record of reversing deforestation and has pledged to reinstate enforcement and regulatory actions that his corrupt predecessor relaxed. The whole earth is watching the leader's approach to the rainforest. I find this interesting that nobody actually uh, cared to put their authorship with that article. Hmm. Are we too cowardly to say who we are when we state these opinions? I'll let you decide that. Moving on now uh, to Merrimat Walsh from the desk of Merrimat Walsh Snow Removal is the title of the article. On the morning of December 15th, the season's first measurable snow began to fall in Council Bluffs around 7.53 a.m. Less than 20 minutes later at 8.10 a.m., the mayor's office first received its first F-bomb accentuated complaint regarding, <laughs> regarding snow removal. As incredible as this might sound, one week later, someone left a similarly nasty voicemail at 7.30 a.m. on a day when snow was forecasted to begin falling at noon. Spoiler alert, no matter how many F-bombs get dropped, we can't clean up snow until it actually hits the ground. Our public works crews, with the help of our parks and recreation crews, work together to clear the streets more effectively and efficiently 
than most communities. In fact, our public works department is so highly regarded by their peers that they have been invited as guest presenters at the North American Snow Conference. Public works is responsible for clearing 649 lane miles of city streets with every snow event. A typical street has two lanes, therefore a mile of street constitutes two lane miles, quote-unquote. But a mile of four-lane roads equals four lane miles, as they're called. For context, it's about 649 miles from Council Bluffs to Dallas, Texas. In preparation for a snow event, Public Works pre-treats much of the roadway to minimize the snow's adherence to the road's surface. However, if rain precedes snow, we can't pre-treat the streets because the rain dilutes the solution, making it ineffective. Additionally, in extreme cold situations, pre-treatments are not effective because the solution instantly melts the snow, which in turn refreezes and creates icy conditions. Our Public Works team takes an innovative approach to pre-treating streets. Regular brine, a.k.a. salt water, dries quickly and blows away in the wind. So we mix the brine with beet juice. Yes, beet juice. The juice from this root vegetable helps lower the freezing temperature of the brine. It is also sticky, which allows the salt to stick to the roads. Beet juice is reasonably priced, non-toxic, non-corrosive, and does not stain and is eco-friendly. During the cleanup process of a snow event, Public Works deploys 18 large dump trucks, each equipped with a new blade and a load of salt. Four additional road graders and two spreader trucks set out for the hills during heavy snowfall. Strategically, the city is divided into 29 separate snow routes, which include 18 emergency routes and 11 residential routes. Emergency routes are listed online at councilbluffs-ia.gov backslash 326 backslash public works. With every snow event, our first priority is emergency snow routes. Our second priority is residential streets, which we begin plowing after the emergency routes remain clear. Sometimes this means we don't get to residential streets until the snow stops falling. Our third priority for snow removal is city-owned sidewalks, parking lots, and trails, which our parks and recreation crews help clear. We are fine-tuning a public-facing map that uses GIS to show the snow removal process in real time. The map will be helpful when you're wondering if certain roads have been treated or plowed. The mayor may declare a snow emergency when winter weather conditions warrant. During a snow emergency, parking is prohibited on snow emergency routes. If our public works crews cannot efficiently clear narrow streets and cul-de-sacs, with cars parked on both sides of the road, we may declare an odd-even parking ban. During an odd-even parking ban, vehicles must park on the odd addresses side of the street on odd calendar dates and the even side of the street on even calendar dates. Residents will be notified of snow emergencies and parking bans via the local newspaper, radio, television, social media, and our website. During plow operation, snow is pushed to each side of the street equally, which can result in a window or windrow, it says, maybe that could be a typo, of snow that may block your driveway. It is the responsibility of the property owner to, or resident to remove this snow. We realize this is inconvenient, but the windrow, I guess that's a word, windrow, is unintentional and unavoidable, and even our crews have gone home to clear their windrows after work. As you can see, our public works crews have a lot to do when it snows. There are several ways you can help the crews be more efficient. Stay informed so you know of any parking bans. Remove snow and ice from your sidewalks within 24 hours. 
Clear the snow around your mailbox and a space for your garbage and recycling containers. Expose any fire hydrants that aren't visible. Blow or shovel snow into your yard, not the street. Help your neighbors out. Be patient with our crews as they work to clear the snow emergency routes first. When we work together, we can accomplish more. So that writes the Mayor Matt Walsh of Council Bluffs. All right, moving on to uh, another story here, or actually opinion piece. One-way speaker fiasco was good for Republicans. I do believe this is written by Robert A. George, who is a Bloomberg columnist and editorial board member who previously worked for the New York Post, Daily News, and New York Post. It begins, streaming's latest hit show, McCarthy Ag Agonistes, Agonistes, has ended its five-day run. But the protracted vote for Speaker of the House highlighted one unexpected yet welcome facet of the Republican Party, actual diversity, and not just of the ideological variety. I recently wrote about how black Republicans in the House, in doubling their numbers from just two to four, might be able to leverage their newly found prominence. I didn't expect their opportunity to come so soon. On the second day of voting, the anti-Kevin McCarthy faction settled on Representative Byron Donalds of Florida as a preferred candidate for speaker. Donalds, elected in 2020, had announced shortly after the November election his interest in running for the Republican conference chair position currently held by Representative Elise Stefanik of New York. Stefanik beat back the challenge easily, but the effort immediately marked Donalds as someone to watch. Sure enough, after supporting McCarthy on the first two ballots, Donald's threw in with the insurgents. When Donald's name was put forth, the Democratic caucus didn't exactly cover itself in glory. In his speech nominating Donald's, Representative Chip Roy of Texas observed that, with the Democrats' earlier nomination of Hakeem Jeffries, for the first time in history, there have been two black Americans placed into the nomination for Speaker of the House. Republicans left to a standing ovation. Democrats were notably slow to rise. Representative Cory Bush of Missouri later tweeted that Donald's is not a historic candidate for speaker. He is a prop. His name is being in the mix is not progress. It's pathetic. That writes Representative Cory Bush. Bush's prop language is a demeaning insult, one often made against minority Republicans. Even more, it denies Donald's agency. He'd already made it clear he wanted a significant role in the Republican caucus. Why not offer himself up for a possible major leadership position? Bush's tweet also betrays an ignorance of how diversity and opportunity work in the real world. Progressives have long argued that diversity is a strength of U.S. society, business, and culture. By nominating Do Donald's, Republicans were acknowledging this truth. Yes, the nomination was symbolic, even quixotic. But there are so are many early opportunities. Indeed, McCarthy's supporters immediately saw the symbolic value of Donald's nomination. On the third day of voting, another black Republican, John James of Michigan, stepped forward to present arguably the best McCarthy nominating speech of the week. James' speech was partly about his own biography, but it was also about the GOP as a historic vehicle for African-American aspirational achievement and McCarthy's role over the last two elections in working to diversify the party. The racial, ethnic, and gender diversity in the GOP was then highlighted over the next several votes with nominating speeches delivered by Representatives Anna Paulina Luna of Florida, Kat Kamek of Florida, and Juan Kiscomani of Arizona.
Republicans may not have had their act together in terms of actually naming a speaker. It took them five days to settle on McCarthy, and in the end, Donalds was a supporter. But the debate showed they understand some of the broader politics of diversity. No matter how right-wing various factions in the party might be, or how much trouble they might cause, they've absorbed the progressive lesson that representation matters. All right, that being read and said, with the time we have left, let's take a check of our sports section here in this reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, Thursday, January 12th edition. In girls basketball, Black Raiders beat up Lynx in second half. That's written by Austin Heinen. Class 5A, number 14, Sioux City East used key third and fourth quarter runs to pull away from Abraham Lincoln on Tuesday night's Missouri River Conference game in Council Bluffs. I would say we got frustrated, but we got cold, and they just went on that run, and we just couldn't match it, Lynx coach Chad Shaw said. Once they got going, it was like a snowball effect. They kept going, and we just couldn't match them. They did a great job of attacking the hoop, and then we when we did stop their attack. They hit threes on the perimeter. The Black Raiders opened the night with an early lead, but the Lynx ended the first quarter with an 11-2 run to take a 16-11 lead as Aubrey Sandboth or Booth hit a three late in the quarter and Emily Pomernakis had seven quick points. Sioux City East responded with an 11-3 run to open the second quarter and retake the lead, but the Lynx kept pace to trail by just a point at the break, 27-26. Both offenses found their flow early in the third quarter, but it was the Black Raiders who prevailed with a 10-2 run in the third quarter and a 15-3 run in the fourth to put away the Lynx on the road. We're just not quite in the condition we need to be, Shaw said. When we get into the fourth quarter, we have to find ways to create those opportunities for ourselves. Perhaps some of that comes down to conditioning. We'll work on that a bit. We did create some good looks offensively, but just didn't finish them when we needed to. Emily Pomernakis and Addie Naughton co-led the Lynx with 12 points each, and Hudson Rao added 11 for AL the Black Raiders. We're led by um, Trishel Miller and Alexandra Flattery, who scored 17 points each. The Lynx will look to get back in the win column on Friday when they travel to Class 4A number 4, Bishop Heelan in Sioux City. That happens at 6 p.m. Friday. The Bills Hamlin released from Buffalo Hospital. That's where we go next. And uh, since I've read this already, we'll go back to some wrestling news after that here locally. This is written by John Walrow of the Associated Press, Dateline Orchard Park, New York. Bill's safety, DeMar Hamlin, was released from a Buffalo hospital on Wednesday, more than a week after he had went into cardiac arrest and had to be resuscitated during a game at Cincinnati after his doctor said they completed a series of tests. A news release from the Bills quoted Dr. Jamie Nadler as saying, We have completed a series of tests and evaluation, and in consultation with the team physicians, we are confident that DeMar can safely be discharged. Nadler said Hamlin will continue his rehabilitation with the Bills. Hamlin is going home after spending two days undergoing tests at Buffalo General Medical Center. He was transferred to Buffalo on Monday after spending last week at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, where the 24-year-old from the Pittsburgh area experienced what doctors called a remarkable recovery. The news came as the Bills returned to practice to prepare to host their division rival Miami Dolphins in a wild card playoff game on Sunday. Coach Sean McDermott said it would be up to Hamlin whether he would visit the team.
His health is first and foremost on our mind as far as the situation goes, McDermott told reporters. We'll welcome him back as he feels ready. Hamlin collapsed on the field after being struck in the chest by Bengals receiver T. Higgins while making what appeared to be a routine tackle during the first quarter of Buffalo's since-canceled game at Cincinnati on January 2nd. He spent the first two days in the hospital under sedation. He was awakened and able to grip people's hands at his bedside and eventually taken off a ventilator and able to address his teammates on Friday. His doctor said Hamlin's progress in recovering from cardiac arrest, considered a life-threatening event, has been normal to accelerated and that he was able to cheer on the Bills from his hospital bed during their win over the New England Patriots last weekend. He has been tweeting his gratitude to fans and medical staff in recent days. Keep me in y'all prayers, please, he wrote Tuesday. Doctors have said it is premature to comment on the potential cause of Hamlin's cardiac arrest. The news release did not provide any information on what the test revealed. The Bills wore number three Hamlin patches on their jerseys Sunday and honored three teammate, or honored their teammate, I read that wrong, everyone, honored their teammate by raising three fingers in the closing minutes. It was part of a league-wide outpouring of support for the second-year player out of Pitt, whose collapse during the Monday night game and the frightening aftermath was seen by millions of television viewers. With an ambulance standing on the field, medical personnel frantically worked on Hamlin for several minutes as anguished teammates looked on, some of them in tears. In the days that followed, $8.6 million in GoFundMe donations poured into Hamlin's Toy Drive fundraiser, which will be used to support young people through education and sports. He also will use proceeds from the sale of new t-shirts emblazoned with the Did We Win, along with his hands in the shape of a heart, to raise money for the trauma center in Cincinnati that initially treated him. All right, we have just a short time left here. Why don't we check in with Vikings... Win two at WIC Quad, host Eagles swept. Duel between AHSTW and Underwood decided by forfeits. This is written by Pete Burnett of the Nonpareil. AHSTW won two of their three duels at a Western Iowa Conference Quad at Underwood on Tuesday night. The host Eagles were swept in their three duels, but fell by just nine combined against AHSTW and West Central Valley. That school, AHSTW, was a number 42 over Underwood, which uh, had 38 points. Avery Vacek from Underwood, 106 pounds, got the duel started with a dominant tech fall, 19-3. After the team split a pair of forfeits, Carson Thompson, 126 pounds, Gable Porter, 132, and Maddox Nelson, 152, also earned tech fall victories for the Eagles. Blake Allen, 138 pounds, pinned his Viking opponent. Porter is one of the top wrestlers in the state with a record of 65-3 and is committed to, a, to continue his wrestling career at the University of Virginia. But with a pair of pins, Blake Akers, 170 pounds, and Colby Wise, or however you say that is a W-E-I-H-S, Wise, or Waze, 182 pounds, and four forfeits in the back half. The Vikings stormed back to win the duel, the final forfeit deciding a competitive matchup. When AHSTW was 54 over to 27 over Southwest Valley. The Vikings won this duel with ease, led by pins from Sawyer Kessel, 285 pounds, Tucker Osbar, 120, 
Gatlin, Gettler, 126. Dayton, Mortal, 152. Caden Baxter, 160. And Henry Lund, 220. West Central Valley, 47 over AHSTW, 36. 47 to 36. Osbar recorded a late third-round pin while Gettler and Lund pinned their opponents in a dual defeat for the Vikings. Joseph Blotzer, 195 pounds, went into the third round but was pinned by Zach Teague at 4 minutes and 43 seconds. West Central Valley, 42-37 to 37 over Underwood. The Eagles led a duel for most of the, the way after Tech Fall wins for Thompson, 20-5 at 3 minutes and 13 seconds, and Porter, 16 to nothing in 2 minutes and 29 seconds. With pins from Will Buckholt, 145, and Nelson, plus a 15 to 11 decision for Riker Adair, 182 pounds. Underwood led comfortably before three forfeits to end the duel with five overall. Finally, Southwest Valley, 48 to 30 over Underwood. Thompson and Nelson both recorded first-round pins for the Eagles in their lone wins outside of forfeits. The Eagles next compete in an invitational at Basor Linwood on Friday and Saturday, while the Vikings are also in action on Saturday at Lamar's. And with all that being read to you, that was our sports section. That is all the time we have left for this reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. This is the Thursday, January 12th edition, as heard here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. I'm your reader today. My name is Andrew Haupt filling in. Hope you have a great rest of your day. We really appreciate your listenership. Wishing you to have a nice day and straight ahead. <laughs>